If you've been paying attention to the news at all over the past week, you've probably heard something about the Texas abortion law. Many pro-lifers see it as a triumph. Many in the pro-choice camp see it as a direct route to back alley abortions and women being padlocked in the house, handmaid's tale style, within the next six months. Probably we should be paying more attention to a case that came out of Mississippi called Jackson versus Dobbs, which actually briefed on the question of whether Roe versus Wade should be repealed. In this episode, we will discuss these two laws and cases that are under review, talk about the potential likely outcomes, and then examine what would actually happen if, I don't say when, but if, Roe versus Wade were to be repealed. Unsurprisingly, I think most of the hysteria from the pro-abortion crowd about this is completely wrong, but it takes a little bit of explanation to understand why. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Welcome, podcast listeners, to another politically charged, but hopefully educational episode of Blind Politics. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Please leave us a five-star rating if your podcast provider gives you the means to do so. You can also find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and on the Facebook and Instagram feeds of the Robertson School of Government. And once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. So I'm flying solo today as we record this. I do have a guest that I want to get on to talk about some of the research that she's done on the issue of abortion, but that's a little bit off topic for today's podcast. So I'll be reaching out to her and hopefully scheduling that and getting that out in the next week or two. But we're going to take a break from the Afghanistan COVID, COVID Afghanistan spin cycle that we've been on because things are happening on the issue of abortion. And uh, everybody is Twitterpated about these things that are happening. I use Twitterpated advisedly there because Twitter turns everything up to 11 and makes everything stupid. So let's try to break down for you what is going on with this Texas law, and then also a Mississippi case that's coming up. Now, let me pause. I would not endorse everything that this podcast says necessarily, but there was a recent episode of the Advisory Opinions podcast with David French and Sarah Isger, where they break down the Texas law, and they kind of give you a a good 101 explainer on exactly what the contours of this law is, how it works, and what the recent Supreme Court decision means, okay? So that is point number one, is that we need to be accurate about what's actually happening right now, and that is very difficult because this is a case about abortion and people have strong opinions about abortion. I'm not going to criticize you actually on this one, okay? There are a lot of issues where people have strong opinions about things that they don't really know what they're talking about. Abortion, I would say, is actually not necessarily one of those because a lot of people that have strong opinions are more plugged into the issue one way or the other than people that don't. People that have strong opinions on abortion have come grappling face-to-face with the question of when does life begin? And with the question of where do the rights of a woman end and the rights of her child begin? 
And that is a complicated question that engenders strong feelings and strong opinions. Now, I don't necessarily think that feelings are the best guide to policy, and I would agree with that on abortion, because I will acknowledge at the outset here that it is easier to empathize with a teen mother, for example, than it is with something that we perceive to be a clump of cells. And I think empathy can sometimes lead us astray. I should probably do a podcast on on empathy, looking at some of Paul Bloom's work. But I think that actually empathy has been one of the main drivers of the side that supports abortion. By the way, I'm not going to use the terms pro-life and pro-choice because those are neologisms. And I think we should be honest about what we're talking about here. One side is pro-abortion in the sense that they support legal abortion. The other side is anti-abortion in the sense that they oppose legal abortion. And so the the labels pro-life and pro-choice actually, I think, obscure in some ways more than than they actually reveal. Okay, we're comfortable talking about pro and anti on other issues, but nobody wants to talk about abortion straight up. Right. And I say this because people talk about, you know, pro-life. Well, how could you be pro-life and then support the death penalty or pro-life and, you know, support just war theory or whatever it might be. All right. That people want to because people don't want to talk about abortion because it's it's not only is it is it one of these emotional issues, but you're talking about either the destruction of a human life or if you don't take that perspective on it, you're talking about the destruction of a potential human life. That's that's undeniable if you want to make the argument that human life begins at the birth canal or some other thing that doesn't make sense. Anyway, trying not to tip my hand and be and to be as even-handed on this issue as I possibly can, which is which is hard because I have strong very strong beliefs about this. That being said, I think pro-abortion and anti-abortion are actually accurate terms. You know, <laughs> one of my favorite debates that some someone decided that they were going to try to be cute on the pro-life issue and say, "Well, you're not really pro-life, you're pro-birth." And someone tried to get me on this on social media. And I think my response may have been, well, I'll accept the term pro-birth if you accept the term anti-birth. Because then we're at least close to what we're talking about here. Okay? We're not talking about all these issues. We're talking about a medical procedure that leads to the destruction of human life in utero. Okay? And that human life part is is something that I guess some people on the pro-choice side would disagree with. But So pro-abortion, anti-abortion is the term that I want to use here. Now... What is actually the status of abortion jurisprudence in the United States? This is important for people to understand. Abortion jurisprudence in the United States, at a federal level, there is very little regulation on abortion. So at a federal level, the U.S. has one of the most permissive regimes of legal abortion in the world. That is true. Okay, If you were to look at most countries in Europe, Most countries in Europe at a federal level, at a national level, have more restrictive abortion laws than the United States. I want to say France has a a ban after 20 or 24 weeks. Britain, somewhat similar. The Scandinavian countries, I think, a little bit more permissive, maybe. Ireland, more restrictive. Ireland has legal abortion, but their, their threshold, by which point you have to get done, is pretty early still. Poland and Hungary, very, very restrictive abortion laws. So the U.S. has one of the most permissive legal abortion regimes at a federal level of any country in the world. Now, it's also worth noting that every state also has a certain amount of leeway in terms of their abortion law, because before Roe versus Wade, there was also no federal abortion law, as far as I'm aware. It was mostly regulated by the states, and states had very different laws already. 
you were seeing differences in abortion jurisprudence before Roe versus Wade. Okay. Roe versus Wade is passed and it essentially leads to a federal policy for the first time on abortion, which is that there is a constitutionally protected right. And the pro-life movement starts in response to this, and it starts largely among Roman Catholics and largely on the left. Okay, The pro-life movement started out with the Catholics. There's an argument that surfaced recently that claims, well, really the religious right was interested in this, these segregation of schools and all this kind of stuff, and that's why they got involved in politics, and that's why they abandoned Jimmy Carter, and you know the pro-life thing was, was later, and you know that really wasn't what started the religious right. Okay, now... All of that is, is, is both true and false. The, the argument that the religious right started because they wanted to protect Christian segregated schools is pretty much wrong. You saw the seeds of the religious right existing way before Roe versus Wade, where evangelicals, for example, were involved in some activism on Israel, were involved in opposition to some of the Supreme Court cases that were happening at the time. So we're right around the time of, if I remember correctly, Engel versus Vital is the name of the case that says that you can't have prayer in schools, in public schools. Okay, this is the thing that always pisses me off when people talk about the history of the religious right. It's not that hard to actually look up what was going on at the time. And you're, if you assume that the religious right is racist, then you're going to look for a racial explanation. But we have this basic problem. We have this basic problem with Muslim groups as well. You know, Islamist groups and violent Islamist groups and radical fun fundamentalist extremist groups or however you want to, whatever term you want to use. Like secular people have this problem of not taking religious people seriously when they say this is the thing that's making us angry. <laughs> and Falwell and Robertson and everybody else who was involved was pretty clear. They saw an assault on the role of faith in the public sphere. They saw the beginning of the gay rights movement. They saw, you know, prayer in school was a huge issue at the time in public schools. And maybe just maybe that idea that we have to protect Christian schools had nothing to do with the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which by the time of the rise of the religious right was over a decade old and had much more to do with the fact that you now had these prayer in school cases coming in. You had increasing what they would perceive to be marginalization of religious perspectives. And you also had in the 1970s a growth of religiosity and a growth of religious parties across the world. So not just in the United States. This is the sort of problem we have in, in America is we, we tend to assume, oh, well, this is a unique family. No, it's not. In the Christian world, in the Muslim world, in the Hindu world, across the world in the 1970s, there is this push. You know, you also had things like the Death of God movement. You had, I, I mentioned Stonewall, right, with the rise of the gay rights movement. Okay, of course these things were going to cause a reaction. Now, I do think that there's there's an element of racism that comes in, but it's, it's not actually as helpful for the pro-choice cause as they might think, because most of these conservative Protestant denominations were pro-choice as early as the early 1970s, and I would argue that that's probably got something to do with the fact that abortion was used as a form of population control in the African-American population in the United States for decades. And that's why I want to have one of my friends who teaches at Regent come back on because she's actually got the data on this. But it's pretty convincing. And, you know, if you want data on the change of that, I mean, just look at the fact that absent Roe versus Wade, okay, absent 
Um, well, Roe versus Wade is, is maybe an oversimplification, but absent the legal abortion regime that exists since 1973, absent widespread availability of legal abortion in the black community, African-Americans would be 2% more of the population. There would be a 2% increase of African-Americans relative to the population as a whole were it not for legal abortion. I know this because I actually used the numbers from the Abortion World Report, which collects just about the best data that we have because some states don't even collect data on abortion, but the best data that we have. And the best data that we have indicate that African-Americans are 13% of the population. They account for 32% of abortions. Whites are close to 70% of the population. They account for 34% of the abortions, okay? So there are almost five times as many white people as there are black people in the United States, but they have virtually the same rates of abortion as compared to the whole per capita, okay? Now, what that means if you trace it out is that you can actually trace back and say, okay, if these abortions were not happening in the black community, we can say the population would increase by X, and because of the per capita rates, the black percentage of the population would increase by something like 2%. It's somewhere between 13 and 14% right now. It would be somewhere between 15 and 16% of the population were it not for legal abortion. Okay. The math on that's not super hard. And I say that because I did the math and I'm not like the best at math. So I would argue this. Contra the critics of the religious right the pro-life position as it was injected into conservative Protestantism. And it did come in from the outside from the Roman Catholics who, as the religious right was starting to team up with the new right, they said, hey, so let's talk about this abortion issue. And you know, the, the Protestant leadership of the religious right quickly picks up on the fact that this ties into the things they're concerned about. Also, one other part of the story that's really important is the Equal Rights Amendment. The ERA was, was seen as something that the religious right was very much opposed to. You know, you got Phil Schlafly and the mobilization of the uh, the housewives from across the country that she was involved with. With I can't remember the name of her organization at the time. But, you know, that has a role to play in, in the religious right. It was not, also not just a Southern phenomenon, right? So they're looking at this stuff and they're saying, wait, abortion is part of this whole thing that we're talking about. And, oh, crap, it really is the destruction of a human life. I would argue this probably makes the religious right and conservative Protestant churches in general less racist. If the religious right had been interested in building a white nationalist movement and had been interested in like going hardcore in the ethno-nationalist direction, you know, they probably would have done that because at the same time as you saw the rise of the religious right in countries like Britain and France and other parts of Europe, you did see where, where, by the way, there wasn't as much of a religious dimension to the populism, you saw a much more explicit ethno-nationalism. And it's only after Obergefell, which is the gay marriage Supreme Court decision, that you see the religious right essentially start leaning toward and, and being more accepting of these ethno-nationalist perspectives. And I would say that that is a temporary alliance that cannot last, because when it comes to, for example, the types of immigrants that we want in the country, there are competing and disparate incentives between those two groups. They have an incompatible assumption of the types of people that we want coming into the country. And that's a whole different issue that for a whole different podcast, but I just wanted to cover that ground because that, that conversation is also near. Okay, so Roe versus Wade is passed. There's now a federal policy. Roe, the Roe precedent is challenged by Governor Bob Casey, a Democrat. Once upon a time in the distant history of the late 80s and early 90s, it was okay to be a pro-life Democrat. It is no longer okay. To, there are more pro-choice Republicans 
that are prominent than there are pro-life Democrats. There's one pro-life governor today, John Bell Edwards, who's a Democrat. Off the top of my head, I can think of two pro-choice governors who are Republican, and there are, oh no, three, at least three that I can think of off the top of my head. Phil Scott of Vermont, Larry Hogan of Maryland, Charlie Baker of Massachusetts. And that's that sort of is off, off the top of my head. There are two pro-choice senators on the Republican side in the Republican Party. There are zero pro-life senators in the Democratic Party. And I don't actually have the number of pro-choice Republican members of Congress. I know there are a few, but I couldn't tell you who they are off the top of my head, so I don't want to tell you the numbers on that. There are depending on how you count it, either zero or one that are pro-life that are Democrats. Okay. So this idea that the Republicans are more anti-abortion than the Democrats are pro-abortion is false. Anyway, but you do have this growth of the pro-life movement in response to Roe. This culminates in the Casey challenge. And Casey establishes a new standard that says that no regulation can impose an undue burden on a woman seeking an abortion. Now, helpfully, and by that I mean not particularly helpfully at all, the court does not in any way, shape, or form establish what an undue burden is. And they've been trying to figure it out ever since. And so that has been sort of the, the, the narrow jurisprudence that every pro-life law has been defended under is that it doesn't impose an undue burden when it's been challenged. Now, what tends to happen is states will pass pro-life laws and then Planned Parenthood or the other clinics in the abortion industry, because it is an industry, will challenge those laws and ask for preemptive injunction. And they'll file suit against the attorney general of that state and, and ask, basically enjoin the attorney general from enforcing the law until the constitutionality is, is decided. So one of the popular laws that a number of states have passed is what, what's called a fetal heartbeat law, which says that you cannot have an abortion once a fetal heartbeat is detected. Now, it's important to note what this covers and what this doesn't cover. Particularly post-COVID, one of the stats that I've read is that increasingly abortions are shifting, the types of abortions that people are, are shifting. And it's going less to the let's go in person to a clinic and more to the RU486, which is the abortion pill. Abortion pill would not be covered by a fetal heartbeat law because it's got to be you know, within a certain very early time of the pregnancy. Okay. So it seems like based on the direction things are going, this would affect a significant number of abortions. I'm not going to say that it wouldn't. This would, would cause significant damage to the sort of brick and mortar abortion industry in Texas. But it's not like it's going to put an end to abortion tomorrow because it seems like based on the numbers that we're seeing, particularly post-COVID, people are more opting for that RU486 abortion pill. Okay. Now, Texas wanted to get around the preliminary injunction aspect. So what they essentially did was they said that the state is not going to enforce this law, but you as a private individual have standing to sue under, and they, and they brought in some other laws where individuals have been given standing to sue sort of on behalf of the state. You do not have standing to sue the woman who receives the abortion. You have standing to sue those who aid in the provision of the abortion. Okay, so that is kind of the workaround that Texas came up with. Now, what happened at the Supreme Court where everybody says, Supreme Court upholds Texas law? No, they did not. What they basically said is, we cannot issue a preliminary injunction against this law because we're not exactly who, sure who we're supposed to enjoin. Okay, you know, the court being a, a very originalist court is like, okay, look, if you're going to issue an injunction against somebody, you have to have a person that's named that you're enjoining from enforcing the law. And, you know, we can't enjoin all 
29 million citizens of the state of Texas. The injunction request was, was essentially an injunction request against a local judge, which would have only affected people who brought cases before that local judge. And so the, the court is basically saying here, yeah, who are we supposed to enjoin? You know, and, and basically what they said is we can't file an injunction against this law until it works its way through the normal process of challenge and review and so on and so forth. And so one of the things that French and Isker said in their podcast, and I'm not a legal guy, so I can't really you know say on this one way or the other, is that it seems like Whole Woman's Health of Austin, which is the the you know group that brought the request for injunction, just assumed they were going to get it and maybe didn't do their due diligence and hadn't really paid attention to some of the particularities of the case, and so maybe hadn't argued it as well as they could have. Okay, so the injunction was a five to four. Everybody, everybody said this is no bearing a row this decision that we're making right now. The five who said we can't enjoin, the four who said that we we should. And the four dissents were all different, okay? Roberts is kind of saying, just enjoin it. We don't necessarily need a name. And Roberts, in his dissent, it's pretty clear that he's mad because Texas is being too cute and he doesn't like it when people are being too cute because they're not following the rules and Roberts is a rules follower. Yes, that's a Roberts rules of order joke. And then the three liberals are like, you know, this is the end of democracy, it seems like Breyer at least has sort of given up on the idea that he has to cite the constitution in his dissents, but okay, whatever. So anyway, that's where we stand with Texas. So the Texas law has gone into effect and essentially what Texas has achieved is they've, they have, (laughs) they've put a major crimp in the, the abortion business in the state until they get, until the abortion companies get some clarity on how this is going to get decided constitutionally. So it's making it very complicated for them to actually perform abortions in the state because there's a risk question, there's a liability question, because they could be liable for lawsuit. And Texas is a very litigious state. It has very strong trial lawyers. So that is definitely a factor that's, that's playing into this Texas abortion law. Now, does that mean that everybody has to wait for things to get to the Supreme Court again, that the, that the actual challenge works its way to the Supreme Court? Well, I'm not entirely sure that the Texas case will make it to the Supreme Court before the underlying issues are decided. And I suspect what Texas is doing here is they are passing a law that will go into effect until another case is decided. And then based on how that other case is decided, they will reform their laws accordingly. That other case is called Jackson versus Dobbs, and it's a case brought against a Mississippi law. Now, the Mississippi law itself is not as restrictive as the Texas law. Texas law was a fetal heartbeat law that comes kicks in about six weeks. The Mississippi law was a ban on abortion after 15 weeks. So you're essentially talking about right around four months of gestation. So it's basically abortions legal in the first trimester and it's legal in I would say good chunk of the second, right? So ha- so kind of halfway-ish through the second, if I'm remembering correctly how the trimesters break down. My wife has gone through this twice, but you know the, the dividing lines are kind of blurry <laughs> for, for me. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm thinking it's 12, 24, 36. Yeah, okay. So essentially you've got the first trimester plus a couple of weeks in the Mississippi law, okay? That's a pretty popular position, actually. Generally speaking, supermajorities support restricting abortion in the third trimester. Smaller majorities, but still clear majorities, support 
banning it outright or restricting it seriously in the second trimester. And then when you start getting into first trimester, eh, then people are not quite so sure. Okay. So that seems to be where the general like public opinion is on the issue. And so Texas is, is more is more aggressive in the six, six weeks. And Mississippi is really, their law itself is probably less controversial. It also doesn't do the the thing about, you know, trial lawyers can enforce or, you know, you can sue, right? So obviously the law gets challenged and Mississippi comes back and they do something that no one's done in a long time. Okay, now background. We tend to think that the court can just sort of, if they've got a case, they can just pluck out a full cloth and decide, you know what, this case has been brought and uh, we're just going to repeal Roe versus Wade. They can't, actually. The court can't do something that it hasn't been asked to do. In other words, if they're not asked to, if they're not given a brief on the justification for repealing Roe, then they're not going to address it, right? They're not going to address an argument that the plaintiffs and defendants don't make. And that's particularly true when you have an originalist court where there are more people, especially Roberts would fit into this camp, that are judicial restraint type folks, okay? So Mississippi actually briefs on repealing Roe versus Wade. They do say, we don't think this law imposes an undue burden, but that's like two sentences in their brief. The vast majority of their brief focuses on why Roe versus Wade is a crappy law. It is worth reading the brief that the Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch put together. If you want to understand a pretty good legal explanation for why people don't like Roe as a law, because it's not actually like super great as a, as a precedent. And it's the kind of precedent that would annoy sort of more constitutional conservatives, even if it were not about an issue like abortion, because it draws on like hypothetical shadow ideas in the constitution of privacy, applies them in a radically new way, and does so without a lot of reference to the text or to the you know original public meaning of the text. And so it's, it's one of these decisions that is outcome driven. And I think everybody who's basically honest about constitutional scholarship that I've read has acknowledged that it's outcome driven. It's just some people like the outcome. And so Mississippi is like actually saying, look, the emperor has no clothes here. This is ridiculous. And y'all should really take a look at this. That's really interesting because it's the first direct challenge to Roe itself since Casey. Now, what are the possible outcomes that could happen from the Jackson case and how does that affect the Texas law? The first outcome is the Texas law is struck down. The second outcome is the Texas law is upheld, but Roe is not struck down. And this would probably involve, again, going, going back to the podcast from advisory opinions, this would probably involve some modification of the undue burden standard, which has always been unclear and would clarify it in such a way that it is Stricter than just saying the law has to have a rational basis, but not so restrictive that it wouldn't sort of eliminate the Texas case. It would, it would put more qualifications on what undue burden means, which means that it would change abortion jurisprudence. It sort of chips away at the understanding that abortion has to be legal for everyone everywhere in the United States, would open more leeway for pro-life states to restrict abortion probably in the second trimester, but it might not actually clear the way for the Texas law depending on sort of how that standard is written and established. And what that means is that when the Texas law comes forward to the Supreme Court, it would then likely be judged under the standard of Jackson versus Dobbs, 
because Jackson is going to be argued this fall and probably decided early next summer. And the Texas case probably won't be argued even until like sometime next year because it's got to go through the lower courts. Now, the other possibility is that the court could say, you know what? Mississippi's right. We're going to strike down Roe. I don't necessarily think that's likely, but it is possible, right? If the court decides that a precedent's bad, precedents have been struck down in the past, and that could happen here. I don't think it will, and I don't think it will because I think I think the most likely outcome is, is the one I just described where the Texas laws have held and it's chipped away at, because I think I think Roberts, if he had his druthers, would rather not have the road precedent, but I also don't think he wants to move dramatically. And I think he will compromise with the conservative bloc and say, okay, we are going to uphold this law. We are going to limit Roe and limit its application, but we are not going to overturn it whole hog because that would be really dramatic. And Roberts is an incrementalist and an institutionalist on the court, and he's he's not going to want to inject the court to that degree into a major political issue if he doesn't have to. So I suspect that's the direction that we're going. I could see sort of a Roberts-Kavanaugh opinion with which the conservatives concur in part, and then a sort of Barrett-Gorsuch-Alito-Thomas block that's more willing to go further on Roe. Of course, we don't exactly know where Barrett's going to come down. Sometimes she sides with the chief and with Kavanaugh, who are more let's take it slow. Sometimes she sides with Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas. And sometimes things get even more scrambled than that. The thing about originalist conservative type judges is you can never actually tell where they're going to go. Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan are going to follow the liberal zeitgeist on pretty much any issue because they're Democratic appointed justices and, and Democrats haven't had a justice who like thinks for themselves since Byron White. And I don't mean that to – no, I do mean that to be that harsh. Democratic justices just really actually do act like their job is to imp- implement liberal policies through the court. Conservative justices are more complicated than that. And this is one of the arguments that happens on the conservative side because there's some conservatives who want sort of right-wing judicial activists and there's some who want more the sort of originalist judicial restraint type folks. And I would say – because the Federalist Society has been in the latter camp for a long time, there are very few of the right-wing judicial activist judges and more of the sort of constitutionalist, conservative, original public meaning types. And with those types, you never exactly know how things are going to go down. Okay, so but I suspect what you're going to see is a limitation of Roe, but not repealing it outright. Now, let's step back from the legal and talk about the political here. So what are the political impacts of these various different things? Okay, let's say there's no movement and the Mississippi law is struck down. First of all, that would mean the Texas law is also automatically going to be struck down because it has a lower threshold for abortion. In other words, it's six weeks, opposed to 15. And if you can't uphold a 15-week ban, you're not going to uphold a six-week ban. Okay, second of all, every conservative who voted for Donald Trump because of the Supreme Court is going to be furious. Because they will say essentially Trump put three Supreme Court justices on this on, on the court, and they still are upholding these abortion policies and these these issues with abortion. And you are going to have absolutely people on the right furious about that, with unpredictable effects moving forward. But certainly, it would be the death knell of any attempt to put original public meaning type 
conservatives on the court. Basically, the standard would be right-wing judicial activists or nothing. And you would essentially have conservative presidents from this point forward appointing judges who will essentially implement Republican policies via the courts and, you know, the Democrats still appointing, you know, left-wing and and it would be completely politicization of the court. Okay. Let's assume that the Mississippi law is upheld and the undue burden standard is tweaked, but Roe is not repealed. Democrats will act like the sky is falling. Uh, They will fundraise like gangbusters for a couple of months but ultimately, when people realize that really not that much has changed and Roe has survived, I would say probably the issue fades. It's really hard to get people riled up about protecting second trimester abortion. It's just it's not it's not a political winner for Democrats. Now, let's let's talk about Roe. Let's say Roe is repealed. Then you're going to see the freak out on the other side. Okay, then you really might actually see a situation where Democrats actually gain some momentum with that, are able to swing some more of the sort of suburban women that reflexively vote pro-abortion because reasons will come out um, for for Democrats. Um, And so that could save them some seats. I'm not sure that it saves them the House at this point, but it will limit the damage for them in 2022. But it does not mean that they win the presidency in 2024, because what most people are going to realize eventually probably within the year, is that not actually that much has changed in their own locality. What do I mean by that? So what does repealing Roe mean? Does it mean that abortion is illegal everywhere in the United States? No. Remember what I said at the beginning of this podcast. Before Roe versus Wade, there were disparate state laws that were in place to govern the regulation of abortion. So if you repeal Roe, That's not a constitutional amendment to the United States banning abortions in all 50 states. What repealing Roe does is it essentially passes the issue of abortion back to the state legislatures. And essentially, both red and blue states have put in place what they call trigger legislation. That trigger legislation being laws that effectively codify that state's understanding of abortion in the event that Roe is repealed. So red states are going to have very restrictive abortion laws. Blue states are going to have very permissive abortion laws. And swing states are going to be somewhere in the middle. In other words, the abortion laws that you live under will reflect the general political political demographics and geographic constraints of the state that you're in. So if you want to get an abortion in Texas, it's going to be hard, if not impossible. Same thing with Mississippi and Alabama. If you live in California, it's not going to change anything. If you live in, you know, Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, that'll be interesting because if the Republicans have the trifecta, they'll try to push for more aggressive abortion laws. But unlike previously, where they could essentially had carte blanche to push for whatever abortion restrictions they want because the court was going to, it was going to be enjoined and, and the court would stop it, you actually will then have to live with any, any political backlash. So it will be a good test of actually you know, how anti-abortion those states really are. But the reality is, I think it'll pretty quickly settle out into a situation where every state has a slightly different regulatory setup for it. But for the vast majority, not much will change. Now, the area where it might change is if you have a poor African-American community where abortions have been heavily targeted at that community in red states. The irony of this is that the the likely outcome is that red states are going to become more 
diverse, more higher percentages of African-Americans and higher percentages of other sort of poor minority communities. Why? Because per capita, those groups have the highest abortion rates. And so what that means is that actually blue states on the whole would get more demographically whiter and red states on the whole would get more demographically diverse. What's the impact of that in the long run? Nobody really knows. But, you know, and New York City is an example here. I think it was 2018 or 2019, there were some statistics that said that half of all pregnancies among women who are African-American in New York City ended in abortion. Okay. If that rate is at all replicated in other areas in red states where there are large African-American populations, that's going to change dramatically. And if that changes dramatically, then you will see higher birth rates among African-Americans and other minority communities. So what's the long-run impact of that? Well, hard to say, but that is is one cultural difference that you might see. And then the other thing that I think is the long-term effect if Roe ever is repealed is that politically active whites will self-sort to a higher degree than they already are. In other words, for most people, you're not going to pick up and move because the abortion laws in, in state X have changed, right? But for people who are the most politically active, who are the most committed to that issue, right? If you're a pro-life conservative living in California, or if you're pro-choice, you know, and here I go using the terms that I said were not good, pro, pro-abortion pro progressive or anti-abortion conservative that is really dedicated and you live in a state of the opposite party, you might move, okay? So there's going to be a little bit more of the self-sorting that goes on because of that. What's the impact of that in the long run? Probably not too much, but some, there will be some impact of that. And the reason that there, that I would say there'll be not too much, but some is because that's already kind of happening. Um, and this will just intensify a pre-existing trend. So in the long run, I'm not sure that the political impact of, of repealing Roe versus Wade is as big as people think it is, because I'm not sure that repealing Roe versus Wade actually does as much as, as people suspect. However, in the short run, yeah, the political impact would, would be substantial, but I, it's not what I expect to happen. So that's for the politics. Now, let me close by, by stepping back and, and talking about the issue in, in a broader sense. I think that the issue of abortion is probably one of the starkest dividing lines in American politics today for those who are politically active. And it tends to sort people's views on other issues. The general population is a lot more sort of in the middle on abortion. But people have been moving as sort of science has increased, as the viability threshold has moved back, as we are seeing that at earlier ages than we realized, babies look more human. Those types of things have an impact on perceptions because I mentioned empathy earlier. I think people have more empathy for the child in utero than they did in 1973. And I think the child in utero has a better chance of surviving outside earlier. And, and that has changed even since, since my daughter was born, which is now almost five years ago, It'll be five years in October. But even in five years, the viability threshold has moved back, you know, almost a week, a couple of days at least. And it's, it's, it's continuing to move back. That's a good thing. We start to get into questions of when is the child in utero a human being? And to a certain extent, that's a philosophical question. But then there's the more pragmatic question of when does the child in utero deserve legal protection? 
This question goes a lot beyond abortion. Okay. If in fact you have blue states that start moving toward the Vermont precedent, then the extra abortion implications are huge. The implications potentially beyond abortion. What do I mean by that? Abortion law in Vermont essentially has gone so far as to say that there are no protections in the state of Vermont in law for the fetus, as they say, which is Latin for baby, but for for the fetus in utero. Okay, there are no legal protections. There's no personhood. They're explicit about that. Okay, personhood in the state of Vermont comes when your head exits the birth canal. And before that, you're not a person. Now, it is a basic law of property that if you can break it and the law doesn't come after you, it's your property, right? Like if you smash your own car, you're not going to get sued for property destruction, okay? If you can kill it, you can also sell it. That's how property works, okay? So what is to stop Let's just say that California codifies uh, the no fetal personhood protection law. What is to stop a poor woman from, instead of aborting her child, selling her child's genetic material in utero, essentially her child's genetic code, to a biotech company, which then makes that child the property of that corporation? Nothing. There's absolutely nothing if you say, in utero, there's no protection. Until that child exits the birth canal, its genetic code, which, you know, again, if you can kill it, you can sell it. Its genetic code is the property of the mother, which means that she can sell it. You can essentially sell the genes of your unborn child, which means the corporations can buy your unborn child. There's a lot about that that we should probably think through because the idea that those property rights end at the birth canal is an abstraction, okay? Especially because you've also had other politicians like the soon-to-be ex and certainly unlamented Governor Ralph Northam who have said that after a baby has exited the birth canal, whether the baby receives treatment is the choice of the mother, okay? If, if the baby is a survivor of a botched abortion. In other words, exiting the birth canal is also not, in some of these pro-abortion jurisdictions, a guarantee that the baby owns itself. Okay? Now, think this through. Because what this means is that at a certain point, you could have babies that are born, who've had their genetic codes sold in utero, who could then be the property of those corporations. Which prima facie seems like a 13th Amendment violation. Does it not? However, how does this get adjudicated? See... People don't think about the second and third order effects when they're making emotional decisions based on empathy, based on the idea that we have to protect the women's right to abortion up until the moment of birth, right? That we have to respond to what the other side is doing by protecting fetal personhood, by saying that there is no fetal personhood. And you think, oh, this only just applies to abortion, but it doesn't. That's not how law works. So you've created a massive loophole that's going to cause Untold problems, potentially, as the biotech revolution kicks off. I know this sounds like science fiction. You know what else sounded like science fiction 10 years ago? Some of the stuff that they're doing now with CRISPR-Cas9. That sounded like science fiction. 
they've already gene edited a baby in China. And that dude disappeared into a gulag so that China could figure out how he did it. Okay. This is not science fiction. This is something that could happen in the next 10 to 15 years. So we need to actually think about this because it goes a lot beyond abortion. It goes a lot beyond abortion. And there should be some concerns about that because again, you know, we don't want to necessarily have 13th Amendment issues arising from poorly conceived and poorly written abortion laws by people who have this emotional attachment to abortion as the keystone for women's rights. Spoiler alert, it's not, by the way, because there's also disparate impact on boy babies versus girl babies. Girl babies are much more likely to be aborted than boy babies. This is like almost universally true across the world. So I'm not sure that that's really that effective in protecting women's rights either. There are just so many problems with the way we've handled abortion. And obviously, and I've, I've said this before, I believe that human life begins at conception and that human beings are, in the, are made in the image of God and you can't deliberately kill them. And I'm not saying that we should criminalize miscarriage. That's dumb. You know, natural accidents happen. But on the other hand, once you move away from that precedent, you start to open up gray areas that have implications going way beyond the issue of just abortion. You create precedents, as Roe has, that warp our constitutional jurisprudence, you know, that essentially say we have to treat abortion differently than any other law. The undue burden standard doesn't exist for any other form of jurisprudence that I'm aware of. Okay, so you've created a special category of jurisprudence for abortion. You have opened a loophole in the biotech century, which we are now in, that corporations will exploit, just will happen. One way or another, they'll find a way to profit from it. You have created a situation in which it is not clear where legal 13th Amendment prohibition against treating people like property kicks in. Okay, you have created a legal framework in which babies can be property. And if babies can be property, why not children? Keep in mind, if a, if a baby is nine to 10 months old, they're still pretty dependent on the mother and, and it still has a deleterious effect on the body of the mother. So if it's my body, my choice is actually an argument for infanticide as well. And there, there's no like real logical reason why it couldn't, except that, well, it's, it's a disparate impact. It's not as much of an impact on your body as pregnancy, which is true. But how much impact is too much? When, when is the burden on the mother not so undue that she can't kill the child? And if you can kill it, then you can and keep in mind, if you can kill it, you can sell it. Anything that you can kill, you can also sell. In fact, it's a lower threshold because you can sell your dog much more easily than you can kill your dog, dog in most jurisdictions, right? So that precedent doesn't, like, it's not perfect. And it actually leans more on the sell side. In other words, if you're allowed to kill something, you're allowed to sell something at a much more permissive level generally than you're allowed to kill something, right? It's seen as much more morally serious if you if you kill a pet, for example, than if you sell a pet to somebody else. Like if you sell a kitten or a puppy, yeah, that's it's treated very differently under law, meaning that we have this presumption that selling something is much more permissive than 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 take than destroying its life. Okay, so like. There's a lot of issues here that come into this. And we have, in the name of, I don't know, bodily autonomy and women's liberation, we've opened Pandora's box 
And we didn't, of course, know that we were opening Pandora's box back in the 70s. Nobody could have imagined, you know, that Gattaca would be a real thing, potentially. And yes, if The Handmaid's Tale is the dystopian for the uh, pro-abortion side, then Gattaca is the dystopian for the anti-abortion side. Deal with it. But we didn't know that we'd be potentially opening the, the door to that. But science has changed. Science has changed in a lot of ways. And our laws haven't necessarily changed to reflect the science. The science that indicates that a lot more human-like activities happening in utero a lot earlier than we realized. So my hope is actually that we see at least nationwide a 20-week ban. Why a 20-week ban? First of all, because something like three-quarters of the population would support a ban on a 20-week ban. Second of all, it would put us in line with European countries. And third of all, it would foreclose some of these, there is no fetal personhood laws in, in states. It would foreclose some of these attempts to essentially ex- extend the mother's right to end the life of the child extra utero, right, outside the birth canal, which is, which is what you get from you know, some of Northam's comments and so on and so forth. I mean, I would prefer like the total ban on abortion, but I'm also realistic enough to know that that's not going to happen at this point. And probably the only way we get there is if abortion becomes unnecessary and culturally unthinkable. It's going to have to become both unnecessary and culturally unthinkable before it becomes fully illegal. And I recognize that. But it seems not totally crazy to me that we could have federally laws on abortion that are like in line with England and Britain and France. Okay, like it doesn't seem stupid that we could have abortion laws that secular European countries where nobody goes to church say, no, 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 you can't you can't do that after this date. Right? If that law is okay for them, it should probably be okay for us at a federal level. That at a minimum should be something that's achievable. And we can all agree on that, hopefully. Right? And then, you know, if you want to couple it with pretty much anything else legislatively, fine. You want to increase maternity leave for moms? Fine. You want to increase funding for, you know, non-abortion women's health for, you know, poor and at-risk communities? Fine. We can tie all of that in with a 20-week ban, right? And come up with a compromise that we would we can all support so that we can slam the door on some of the scary stuff that could be coming down the line. We can establish something that is closer to a national consensus. We could beyond that leave issues up to the to the different states, but there would maybe be less of an impact. And especially if the undue burden standard is changed, but Roe is not repealed, then there's a, a narrow window between 20 weeks and, and whatever the threshold, you know, and, and it's probably going to be somewhere first trimester. Like let's say, it's, let's say it's even, you know, it, it kind of goes back to the standard of first trimester is protected. Second and third is, is fair game. And if the feds then pass a 20 week ban, then states have a window in which they can, they can differ, right. Based on some of those cultural differences that people have and, and, and so on. But it's not a difference that's going to like rip apart the country, and it's not a difference that's going to completely throw open the doors to biotech companies down the line buying the genetic code of you know babies in utero. That door has to be firmly closed. It has to be slammed closed before it ever has a chance to open. That is not a road that we want to go down. And so to me, like that seems like from a policy perspective, the best achievable. Is it fully what I want? No. Is it fully going to satisfy people that are on the pro-abortion side? No. But it's probably what's achievable right now. And I think, you know, if the price of that from a conservative side, and I tend to be somebody who's more fiscally conservative, but the price of that is, you know, paid maternity leave and increased 
funding for women's health clinics that don't provide abortions in, in poor and at-risk areas, I pay that price every day and twice on Sundays to a substantial degree. And so I think that's ultimately, from policy perspective, where, where we need to get in, in the short term. And in the long term, hopefully we can continue to move toward making abortion technically unnecessarily and morally unthinkable. And that's going to require increases in science, improvements in science, better fetal health development, which is something that we need to spend money on, dedicate significant research funding to, better fetal health and fetal medicine, development of biobags, which they're already working on for preemies that are at risk. I mean, the technology, even from like when my daughter was born preemie to what exists now, they're moving very rapidly in, in that direction. And I think that's a positive. You know, hopefully we can continue to move down the line of improving the science, improving our care for mother and child, and making it so that abortion becomes unnecessary and unthinkable. And at that point, then then it becomes illegal, right? And, and I just realistically, that's the direction that it's probably going to have to go. But that doesn't mean that we can't restrict it, that we can't bring our country into the same, into, at least into line with other Western uh, industrialized democracies, and that we can't have a more rational conversation about let's not celebrate this thing. I think celebrate your abortion makes people very uncomfortable, and it should. And I, I think it even sort of makes people who are more sympathetic to the pro-choice side a little bit queasy when people do that. And that's probably a good moral instinct. And we should probably use that moral instinct to like slam the door on infanticide and slam the door on people selling the genetic codes of their unborn children to biotech companies like down the line, because that would be really not a good thing. And so, yeah, I, I think all of those things are achievable. So keep your eyes on these cases as we move forward. Like I said, Jackson versus Dobbs, I think is going to be argued this fall. And then the Texas case will come back up for an argument a little bit later on next year. I'm hoping to do one more podcast on abortion sometime in the next couple of weeks, but I need to get the guests lined up on that. So I will let you guys know uh, if, when we are able to do that. So that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Uh, views expressed, of course, don't represent those of Regent University or the Robertson School. And I would add, again, on this, this policy issue that I, I said at the end just before I close, this is what I think is, is practically achievable, not necessarily what's desirable. So, you know, just to, just to reiterate that for anybody at Regent who is, is, is listening, uh, there's a difference between the politics of the possible and, and what my own personal inclinations might be. So that's going to wrap for this episode. For Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. Mm-hmm.